Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in a new virtual room. Collaborate live, building ideas on the same page. And see more of your team on screen at once. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash Teams. Introducing Built to Last, a new podcast by American Express. I'm Elaine Welteroff, and I'm excited to host the debut season where we will be deep diving into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Through these important conversations, we'll hear how the Black business leaders of our past have inspired today's Black-owned small businesses and communities. Join us for the debut season of Built to Last on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey guys, you like science, you like learning, we can't cover everything on this podcast, certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about, water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nations' economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Welcome, everybody, to the Here We Are podcast. This week, I'm talking with Professor Harold Pollack at the University of Chicago, the School of Social Service Administration, and the author of the book, The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. How are you doing, Harold? Thanks for joining me today. Doing great. Thanks for having me. Um, so you actually are not, uh, you don't study finance. Um, not, well, I mean, uh, that's not your in your job title. That's absolutely correct. Uh, so how'd you end up writing a book about finance? Well, this is sort of a strange story. I became very interested in finance sort of by necessity. Uh, a, a little bit over 10 years ago, uh, when I moved to Chicago, uh, we had a family tragedy and my, my mother-in-law actually died suddenly and my brother-in-law, who's intellectually disabled, had to move into our home uh, and my wife had to leave the workforce to take care of him, and, and we faced some pretty serious financial challenges, uh, which led me to be more serious about uh, trying to understand, you know, what should I be doing uh, you know, now that I'm not quite leading the same financial life that I expected. 
and I became quite interested in the subject. As you pointed out, I'm not a trained uh, financial economist, although I, I do have academic training in public policy and in, in economics that is helpful for me. And I started to look at what is out there. And one of the first things I discovered was, boy, a lot of the stuff that's out there is not only not helpful, but it's actually actively harmful. Mm. And that there was there were kind of two conversations going on. One was among the people who really are well-trained in this. And that was actually simpler than the conversation in some ways that was being presented to ordinary investors on sort of financial media and things like that. And um, a couple of years after uh, I really started to do this, I interviewed on my own uh, website, uh, Helene Olin, who had put out a book called Pound Foolish, which was about the financial industry. And and one of the things I just said offhandedly to Helene while we were talking was, uh, you know, isn't the financial advice industry's fundamental problem that, that the best advice is available for free in the library and it would basically fit on an index card? And then we sort of continued the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I started getting these emails saying, well, okay, where's the index card? And I was kind of stuck because I was speaking metaphorically. But I had promised, you know, so I so I grabbed one of my daughter's index cards uh, that she was using in high school and I just started scribbling down and maybe it took me two minutes and I took a picture with my iPhone of the of the card and I just posted it on the web and uh, and people started to really jump at it. Uh, it was in the Washington Post. It was in a bunch of very popular websites I actually hadn't heard of at the time like Lifehacker and Boing Boing. Weirdly, it won um, Money Magazine's one of their best new ideas of the year, which is hilarious because all the things on there are things like pay off your credit card and, you know, there's nothing that's really new and revolutionary, uh, but we can go into it, somehow yeah. grab people's imaginations. Uh, oh, we'll go into it for sure. And this is this is something that I need all sorts of help with. And, and uh, this is a, a lot of a lot of my um, subject matter on here is is stuff that I uh, know if, uh, a bit about or have read several books on or, or whatever. And then I sometimes have uh, other subjects uh, like this, like finance, which is something that I am embarrassing, embarrassingly bad at, especially in my personal life. Well, we and, all are, I think. <laughs> I mean, I certainly was until I was at least age 40. So, uh, you know, so I, I think you're, you're probably the typical person. Yeah, so I got about five years to get my act together. That's right. Um, and I think you may have the only index card to ever go viral. Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty uncommon uh, thing. So, so you made this list of ten different um, elements to... Uh, to personal finance, um, so so uh, let's let's go through them. What's what's number one? You know, I, can, and, and by the way, um, it, all my listeners, you can um, not only can you get the book on Amazon, but you could do what I did and go to Audible or I'm sure other sites and get the audio version, and um, and which is what I listened to uh, today, and it's a pretty short book, very easy to understand, and uh, already. I've already made changes uh, today, um, based on uh, which I'll, I'll get into once we uh, once we hit a couple of these um, these key aspects of it. You know, I'm so glad that you made changes actually, because I, I'm weirdly passionate about this stuff. You know, it's it's I have a whole academic life which is largely independent of this book, but I I, I really think that that many of us could really 
improve our lives by getting a handle on this stuff a little better. I don't think it solves every problem. In fact, the last thing I put in the index card is uh, is about the importance of social insurance, and, I, and I'm sure we'll, that'll come up in the conversation. I don't think this is a cure-all by any means, mm-hmm. but I think f- for many of us, we can really reduce our stress and improve our our financial lives by by doable things mm-hmm. and by getting a getting a handle on our saving and spending, making it as automatic as we can, and and doing sensible things. and And I found that once I started to do that, that it made my life better. and uh, And when I talk to my students, uh, many of them sort of say, "How do I start?" And there's a sense of relief. I actually have some kind of a path that I can follow that's that's realistic. That's not going to make you a millionaire uh, overnight. There's many people ask me like, how can I become a millionaire or something like that? And I, the answer is, the only thing I can say is save twenty percent of your money for like thirty years, and that'll work. Yeah. People, so you don't recommend getting the Powerball ticket for the one point four billion dollars? Uh, no, that's <laughs> this probably, is going to air weeks from now. But maybe. Well, you probably should have a backup plan. <laughs> yeah. There. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, but I think that there there are – I don't actually have anything against somebody buying a Powerball ticket. I think you can be a little bit of a blue-nosed snob about some of this stuff yeah. and like, like never go to Starbucks and like, like don't waste any of your money ever. And I think the point is to spend your money on the things that give you pleasure and that are valuable in your life. And if you really – like if it gives you incredible mojo to go to Starbucks every morning and have a skinny mocha latte and pay four bucks for it or whatever – that's awesome. You just have to look at the other things in your life and say, okay, how am I going to make, if I'm going to spend $4 a day on this, I might want to think about something else that I don't care as much about that I'm going to spend less money on. Or you might say, hey, I don't really care about coffee. I'm going to buy crappy coffee in the office coffee machine and I'll take that $4 a day and I'll put it aside for something that I just enjoy more. And you know, if you like to think about what would I do with $1.4 billion if I won the Powerball and I'm going to buy a $4 ticket this time just to kind of you know, enjoy the sensation of that. I'm actually kind of okay with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you go in every day and buying lottery tickets, I'm not okay with that. That's probably a, a waste of money. But I think that, um, you know, we all, you have to put yourself on something that is realistic in your life and reasonable. And, uh, and I'm sure we'll come back to that. But I did want to say on your, on your point about the, uh, about the coffee, there's, uh, in your book, you mentioned um, someone had a quote about you know the four dollars a day you spend on a latte or whatever you could save x amount of money in a year. But uh, you know, to your point, I I do have I have a lot of comic friends. This isn't how I write, but I have a lot of comic friends that go to Starbucks and get a coffee and spend a couple hours there writing, and it's um, you know creative environment for them and stimulating, and that's that's a pretty cheap office space. It's you absolutely. Know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so uh, let's get to the index card. Okay, let's do it. Uh, um, so th- this this first one is. Uh, I wish another one was first because your first one is maybe the most intimidating <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. me. Um, it's strive to save ten to twenty percent of your income. Um, well, th- this is really fundamental. Yeah, it's hard. Also, my original card, by the way, said save twenty percent. Mm-hmm. And which I think is totally appropriate if you're a University of Chicago professor, right? I think people like me should definitely save twenty percent of our income. Uh, you know, if you're if you're an upper middle class person, uh, it is you know that is a good goal for you. And if you actually look at how much you need to retire and maintain your current 
lifestyle, that's about, you know, you're going to need that. Uh, but I think for a lot of people that that ended up being really sort of demobilizing. It was so hard. And ba- I got a bunch of emails that were more or less of the form, Dear Professor Pollock, I'm a 28-year-old single mom. I'm reading your index card, trying to follow your advice, and you just said save 20% of your money. Fuck you. <laughs> and um, and I actually get that. Yeah. You know, I mean... I, I, mean, <laughs> I, believe, I mean, 20% to me seems very daunting. Now, uh, of course, I think about all the money that I waste. I'm like, well, maybe it wouldn't be so hard. But, um, you know, it, I'm... Uh, it, for... I'm fortunate to have a you know, quote unquote successful ish career as a as a comedian, but it is a very very unpredictable yeah. job with a unpredictable workflow, and you know you can kind of predict well summer is going to be kind of a slower time for me. Fall should be a, a better, more lucrative time. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, ju- just so you know, you're talking with someone who has um, never had a savings account in their adult life, uh, which uh, is uh, obviously uh, ridiculous. I should definitely have a savings account, but I was, um, I was, uh, well, I, I should save. It, you know what? I, I'm just. Before we go on to this, mm-hmm. I'm going to skip to rule number two just to sh- just so you can get up to speed with where I'm at in okay. in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so pay off your credit card balance in full every month, and um, so so I I did that. I had credit cards. I'd have uh, you know I travel all the time. I fly everywhere, so I'd have mm-hmm. you know a United card or. Um, uh, you know, American Airlines card or whatever, so I'd get miles. And I did. I paid it off every month. And like I said, I never had a savings account. Well, as as listeners to the program have had to hear me talk about over and over again, about a year and a half ago, I had a hiking accident. I broke both of my feet, and Ooh. one of them needed uh, serious surgery and doctor's orders. I had to clear my schedule for three months. So unexpectedly had three months off of work, um, and uh i mean i had insurance that covered for most of it not not all of it i still had some bills um but i was not expecting that 3 months and i ended up kind of putting that 3 months on my credit card and, and my credit cards and after that 3 months i started paying that off a little a little by little and and was coming along and then uh 6 months later there was an infection from the surgery, and then I had to doctor's orders another two months off of work, and then I put all of that on. I ended up having to basically max out all of my credit cards, yeah. and uh, and I'm still working toward. That was, you know, n- nine months ago when I start was able to start working again, and I'm still very much working toward um, paying those off. So it, I didn't mean to skip over the uh, 10 to 20 percent, but uh, that, that's where I'm at right now. So definitely I need to pay those off, kind of priori- prioritize a little bit yeah. before I get to that well, but 10 yeah, to 20%. Well, credit cards are absolutely the critical thing for many, many people, many of my students, by the way. I think many of my students will not tell their romantic partners what they owe on their credit card, even though they've been together for a while. They may be living together and they 
that we're not ready to talk about yet. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a big, uh, yeah. you know, I, uh, it, I mean, it's amazing how intimate. You know my email password, yeah, but you're definitely not getting my bank statements. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I'm totally faithful to you, but I totally don't want you to see my credit card statement. <laughs> it's understandable. Yeah, I've and, been there. And well, the thing is, every dollar that you pay for your credit card, on average, people are paying like 14% interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 if it's been chronic and so on, you may be paying more. That every, that is a when you pay that down, that is a guaranteed, tax free, risk free return. Nobody who's not named Warren Buffett is getting a guaranteed percent, fourteen percent return right. on anything. So you have a huge opportunity with your credit card. Uh, you know that's just it's both your be- it's your best friend paying it down is an awesome way to improve your situation it's your worst enemy that boy that thing can really snowball right. and in fact if it snowballs if it's if it's really snowballs out of control that's sort of a separate conversation and right. there's and and it is uh i mean one of the, your story by the way one of the things that is so important about your story is you're doing everything right and you got injured right and and that's where a lot of debt comes from and you know, I, I think one of the reasons why we're Helene in particular. I'm, I'm actually more of a Puritan than my co-author is. Like, I drive this old junky professor car, and I'm just, I'm sort of, I, I satisfy every stereotype. And um, um, but you know, one of the things that 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 I really have appreciated in her other work, and that I agree with strongly, is the sort of latte factor stuff is a way to blame people when they owe when when they're in debt or they have not been able to accumulate wealth for things that are often really beyond their control you could have basically not had any latte for a couple of years and that's not going to cover being knocked out of the workforce for a couple of months yeah and and you know these are the big things that and the fact that you're sort of self-employed and you know and, and you know whatever your situation is you're not you don't have the safety net that you would have had if you were like working at Google and had the same accident happen. Right. Exactly. And I mean, that's the wonderful thing about your life. You get to have this really interesting career, but you're also your, you're your own pilot and co-pilot and, uh, crew. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and I was going to say as in the beginning of the conversation, when you talk about, you know, finance being something that's on a lot of people's mind and a major stressor, I mean, it is something that if I don't, uh, if I don't get stressed about my finances, um, it, if not once a day, probably at least every three days or so, I start. Uh, I, I get at least a little thought of, oh no, I better figure out a way to take care of some of this stuff. And I think a lot of people are now, operating out of fear. And now, let me make two points about that. Uh, one is, is if you don't have huge credit card debt. It's a really good idea to think about how can I how can I keep this down. One thing is just spend use cash more, mm. and keep a financial diary. Keep track of what you're spending, but also just 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 use cash money for stuff. I find that I spend less money when I'm spending with cash than when I have this little poker chip. You that just I swipe yeah. and they give you a computer or yeah, whatever awesome. else you need. It's awesome. <laughs> it's just awesome. Yeah, I, I just have this I wave this piece of plastic and they give me stuff. And and also don't think about your credit card reward program. You know, you mentioned your United yeah, Miles, yeah. whatever. The truth is the amount that you get back in these reward programs is small as a percentage of what you're spending. It's like one or two percent usually. And the more you think about it, the more you spend. And you know what you could do use cash and then give yourself your own reward program. 
and uh, you know, just say at the end of the month, you know, I'm just going to give myself two percent of whatever, and I'm going to yeah. you'll come out ahead. Now, the other thing is this issue of when you're constantly stressed, and this is what my life was like when I had young, when my wife and I had young kids, and we had daycare expenses, and we had one income, and when you're spending a lot of time basically managing your day-to-day cash flow, dealing with that constant stress, um, it's really hard to be on a plan because what you're trying to, you're doing immediate problem solving. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, I got this, this bill is due. I got to pay it. I don't want my, is that checking a bounce? Am I, you're sort of in that reactive mode and everything we know about behavioral economics says you just, you just can't follow a long-term plan when you're in that mode. You know, we often ask, you know, why do people go to payday lenders and stuff like that? You know, is it that people don't know that these things are really high interest? And, and sometimes financial literacy is a big, you know, is a part of the conversation. But a lot of it is these, these high-interest lenders, they solve problems for people. And a lot of people are like, yeah, I know this kind of sucks. I know I shouldn't be doing this. But right I'm I can't worry about that right now because right now I have to worry about is my check going to bounce for my kid's daycare? And if I go to these people, they can help me solve this problem. Now, unfortunately, if I go to these people, they'll help me solve this problem. And then next month I got a new problem <laughs> because I got the old problem again. Plus I've got the interest payments on this payday loan. I mean, you can see how the snowballs. The best thing about getting on a budget and, you know, you said it's hard to save 20% of your money, which it is. The thing that I found was that once I got a little bit ahead, my life became a lot less stressful. And then I really could actually have a battle plan. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, once you have a little bit of a strategic reserve, then you really can say, okay, what am I going to do? Well, how am I going to plan? You know, you know, should I start saving for my retirement or whatever? Before you have that strategic reserve, you're spending all your time, like, try, you know, checking your, getting on the web and figuring out, like, how much do I have in my checking account? Is that going to cover what's needed? Is there, is there some bill that's going to show up you know, I'm nervous now. I'm going to walk out to the mailbox, and uh, uh, and and I think that that you know, although budgeting is hard, it has this very immediate psychic reward that you just you just your life can get less stressful, and that's probably the best reward that that I've gotten from some of this stuff. Yeah, and uh, well, you also make a uh, a great point in the book. That's it's very it's a very simple point. When you, but it's one of those things when you hear it, it's like, oh yeah, of course. But you know, you don't. A lot of people don't think to do it, and it's a nice metaphor comparing it to exercise. But just starting small, and uh, you know, twenty percent sounds a lot. Starting with saving one percent first, and then see how that goes. Save two percent after that, you know, three percent the month after that, and build toward that. 10 or 20 percent and certainly and start with those credit cards the highest interest rate credit card you stop spending on it and you you pay the minimum on all your other cards and you load into your highest interest rate credit card as much as you can and you just keep keep chipping away and um you also kind of recommended calling you know i guess there's it doesn't probably doesn't occur to a lot of people it didn't really occur to me that sometimes you can just call your credit card company and talk to them possibly about lowering your interest uh yeah the worst that happens is you've wasted a phone call i mean i i think that some of the strategies to get on low interest rate credit cards if you're sort of doing that all the time that's probably a symptom hey i got a deeper issue with with that but some of the strategies can you know they can be helpful and and, um um, but you want to get yourself to a point where that's just we use credit cards you're using it 
transactionally. You're buying stuff, you're paying off your bill at the end of the month, and that's what you're doing with them. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked the reason why I initially got the credit cards was just I liked the kind of the accounting aspect of it, made it made it easier, and and you know I had it in mind that I was going to be paying them off every month, and I did until you know uh, an emergency happened, which which um, you do mention the importance of having kind of an emergency reserve just for this sort of thing, so then you don't have to dip into credit cards, which I guess is kind of. Um, you know, it goes along with the saving the ten to twenty yeah. percent. That that's kind of it in that that you should have some sort of a safety net um, built for yourself. Oh, and by the way, I did. I tried calling today. I tried calling one of the credit cards to see, and they the one that I tried didn't uh, didn't offer me a lowest interest rate. But I did upon your suggestion, and I knew it was something that I should do anyway. I called my cable company. This is what I said I was going to tell you uh, earlier on. I called my cable company today to reduce my bill, and I am now saving $40 a, m- a month That's just awesome. from a 15-minute phone call. And what is so, it that you did that saved $40? Did you have to um, give up anything? I, no, not really. I had to, they asked me, you know, I told them I was thinking of getting rid of my TV because I'm never at home um, at all anyway and just keeping the internet. And they asked me what channels that I used and what I'd like to keep and blah, blah, blah. When I told them the ones that I used, they were able to cut out some of the other things that I had tacked in there. But, yeah, I think some of it was, you know, you get some sort of, uh, they, they give you like a premium package or something like that. For si- It's free for the first six months. And then you, if you forget to cancel it after that six months you're getting that extra money tacked on and with my cell phone recently too i went to get a new cell phone and since i was doing all that transaction i was like well will you guys look at my bill and see if there's a way to lower it and i think that was another five or ten dollars a month that that stuff is really useful and especially a lot of stuff on your credit card can kind of start to accumulate on it and you sort of you know you, you like there's the magazine that I subscribed to that I kind of forgot about or right. whatever it is. And one exercise you might think of is suppose I lost my credit card and everything got canceled. And I had to you – know, What are, is there stuff here that I wouldn't bother to re-up? If it wasn't a pain for me to go cancel it, but it just got canceled for me because I had to cancel my credit card. Yeah. What, what, what on here would I just get rid of? And for me, there was definitely things that that fit that. And there's some other things you can do, uh, by like don't you know don't rent your uh, don't rent your modem from the cable company. Uh, right. You know, there's some things that are sort of. And I found you know one of the rules we'll get to is with insurance is having the highest deductible you can afford on your homeowners and your auto insurance. Like I've never filed a homeowner's claim, and right. I probably and, I, and I'm going to try hard not to. You know, that's really the homeowner's insurance is for the tree falling through your roof. Right. You know, it's for the stuff that's really major, and you want to really protect yourself against that. Uh, it's not for, um, uh, you know, I have this, I have this six hundred dollar bill. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is get a big deductible. And you have a, and build up a strategic reserve. So I like to maintain two or three months living expenses as a sort of strategic reserve. Once you have that, then you say I'm going to take a big deductible on my insurance. And I'll pay the bill if it comes for that. And you might say, well, why am I? Why would I do that? 
Well, first of all, the insurance company saves money because they're not dealing with these little claims all the time, which are expensive for the insurer. But the main thing is the kind of people who get these high deductible policies are the people who think that they don't, they're not going to need to file any claims. So you're, you're putting yourself in with a safer group of people. Right. And, uh, and some comparison shopping around that, raising that deductible, uh, you know, can be really helpful. And, uh, you know, there are definitely things, uh, especially on your phone, your cable, your insurance, uh, you know, where you, where you really can save, uh, you know, $40 a month that you saved. That's a, that's not that's significant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's pretty a, significant. That's a lot of beer money. <laughs> yeah. You think, yeah. That is absolutely a lot of beer money. By the way, d- drinking less beer is another good way to save money there. Um, but we'll leave that one aside. I, I just, I just like the idea of, uh, of, uh, telling, a um, someone who's a, giving financial advice that all this money that I'm saving is going toward beer. Yeah, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm actually harming things. You should find, <laughs> things, find things that waste a lot of your money. You know what yeah. you should do? You should really pick up, like, the lottery. You know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I did. I, I know the difference between having, on my car insurance, having um, a 500 and a $1,000 deductible, which is what I have now, the higher $1,000 deductible or whatever it was. I can't give you a number, but if I had to ballpark it, it was I think it was close to fifty dollars a month or something like that. Yeah, so basically, in two years, so in one year actually, you're getting more back than the difference in the deductible just by paying less. So yeah. you just take that money, just put it in the bank, and just keep it in there in case you ever need to repair your car, and you're going to come out. You're going to come out ahead. So this is something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. This is this is not the first time I've ever heard. Um, this advice, I and I keep on telling myself I'm going to start, I'm going to do it. But you talk about, uh, you know, the importance of having a budget, and this is something. I mean, uh, there's probably not anyone listening to this that hasn't heard. You should really have a budget, but I think a lot of people. I, I don't. I, I don't uh, really do a very good job of tracking where my money is going. Most and, of us don't. Uh, yeah, and, and, and but it's it's very informative. And, and you can do things. Some people like to just keep it in a notebook or on a spreadsheet. Some people like to use mint.com or, you know, there's a number of web things. If you keep track of your expenses, and you, and you do it for a while because there's certain things that just come up sporadically, uh, you will see some things and you'll say, hey, I didn't realize I was spending that much money on that. Uh, do I, is that really what I want to do? And, and this is actually where, you know, you might discover, hey, I'm going to Starbucks a lot and I just don't care enough about it to, you know, I didn't realize I was spending, you know, $30 a week there and I'm, you know, I, I might as well just find some other way to do that. The, um, um, so I, I think that, I think it is useful to be, to, and to, the goal is to make sure I'm spending my money on the things that I want to be spending my money on. Yeah. 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 I mean, as far as it's, I think what's kept one just being lazy in general, I guess. Uh, but but also some of it's fear. Some of it's like I don't want to see what I'm spending on a few. Th- like uh, if, if I once I start a budget, I can just about guarantee one of the things that I'm going to be really examining is is my dining expenses. I'm I travel. I'm on the road a lot, and I I don't really grocery shop very much at all unless I'm home for a few days or whatever. And I know I'm spending more on eating out, and I definitely, I definitely go to much nicer restaurants and whatnot than I need to. And I'm sure if I see that in a budget, I'm I'm going to start making some changes. See, that's not my problem. I, I my problem is that I like cheap junk food. Uh, so my problem is not the financial problem. It's that I'm it's the I'm going to die problem if I eat like <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah. 
there um it, it is uh, well you know you just have to try to balance that uh there um but anyway that's by the way when you said you're lazy it brings us to the next rule maybe oh uh, the the 401k yeah so well but the best way to say by the way is to channel your laziness and to say let's make it all automatic Right. And so every time you get a paycheck, you want to you want that money to go straight into the into your savings, uh, so that it doesn't have to pass through your hot little fingers, and and it doesn't become uh, it just becomes something that you automatically do. Now, if you're self-employed, it's a little bit more tricky because you don't get the same regular paycheck, and both savings is more important and more difficult for you because right. of your sporadic income, just the way it comes in. There is something called an SEP IRA. And so what I would do is every time I get a check, I would just take like 20% of that check and put it into like Vanguard or one of these types of places into an SEP IRA. And, and that's how kind does of the, that work? So it's a little bit like the equivalent of a 401k for self-employed people. You can put in, there's a bit, you know, you can put in up to something like $52,000 this year. So, uh, into these, if you you know if you're if you're at a point where twenty percent, yeah, 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 I don't yeah. need to worry about that. Max. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. So that max is okay, but you're allowed to put in up to uh, about twenty five percent of your income, mm-hmm. and it defers that, and that gives you a big tax advantage. But it's also just a way that you can put money in for your retirement. And uh, so the money that you put into that, you're not taxed. You're not taxed now. When you when you withdraw it in your retirement, mm-hmm. you will be taxed on it the same way that people with IRAs are taxed. So, you know, so you will eventually, but it delays that tax and you're probably when you retire will be in a lower tax bracket just because, you know, you'll be retired. So, yeah. How, how exactly do, I, I mean, I think I have a pretty, well, I shouldn't even say, I, I have a sense of how 401ks and IRAs work, but, but can you explain them specific, because uh, I don't know if every person, I, I remember there's a couple of my old jobs before I was a comedian that they'd be like, you can put money in a 401k and we'll match you. But they didn't really say what that was. They'd just say, like, for for retirement. Is it different for every business? or Well, businesses have a lot of options about whether they'll offer a 401k and how they might match what you put in. Mm-hmm. But most people here who are drawing regular paychecks have some sort of a 401k or there's an equivalent for nonprofits called a 403b, uh, which is basically the same thing, where – you said they take money out of your paycheck and you get some immediate you're not taxed on that right now it goes into some sort of an a brokerage account uh, and you know which is which you can invest in some sort of sensible mutual fund and very often your employer will will match you up to some up to some uh you know limit so if you put in 5% of your income they might put in another 5% or or more depending on where you work and um uh, and that's kind of, 401k for many people has kind of replaced the traditional pension that, that firms used to offer. And 401k, we can, we can have a whole long discussion about whether this is good public policy. In a lot of ways it's bad public policy, but it's the world that it's the world that we're in as individuals and you got to make the best of it. Uh, it's called the defined contribution retirement benefit. In other words, the, your employer has put in this money. It's, so they made a contribution that's tangible. How much it's going to be worth when you retire depends on how you invest it and how the stock market does and all that sort of thing. Uh, and what you want to do as an individual is basically put as much in your 401k as you can. That's where I do most of my saving. Uh, and you can actually, an individual can put in uh, uh, quite a bit depending on your, you can, there's a, as you get near retirement, you can put in more. 
but you can put in more than $20,000 a year into this thing if you have it. And that's basically the way I do most of my savings. It just is automatic at the end of the month, and it goes in there. And uh, and um, one of the ironies of this, as we'll get to later, is a lot of people ask me, well, what should I invest the money in? Like, I'm I'm not sure what, what am I going to do? Where am I going to, you know, there's like 50 million funds, and I'm, you know, they all have weird names like the Adventure Sunshine Fund or whatever. <laughs> That turns out to be. I like adventure and sunshine. I guess I'll invest in that. One. That you know, that's about as logical as many of us do. It turns out that's the easy part. Uh, the hard part is coming up with the money to actually put in the four hundred one k. Right. That all you need to do once you do it is a well diversified stock index fund that doesn't cost very much is what you want to buy. And it turns out that those outperform like everything that everything else that that people are trying to sell you, and uh, like the. You know the total stock market index fund, something like that. You know, that's mm-hmm. something with low, low fees. And and you know, as you get near retirement, you want to be a little bit more conservative in your investments. So, what a lot of people do is they take a hundred or a hundred and ten, and they subtract their age from that, and they say, okay, I'm going to have a stock fund that's a hundred, a hundred and ten minus my age percent in stocks, and then the remainder is in some sort of bond index fund. And you can do, you can be, we describe in the book, you can be a little bit more. You know, a little bit more discriminating than that, but that basically gets you there, and and um, uh, and that works pretty well. So, so the four hundred one k, if you use it well and you start early, mm-hmm. can be your friend. Now, my problem was when I started, uh, I was twenty two years old. I got the paperwork for my four hundred one k, and I sort of looked at it. It was kind of boring and complicated. I sort of stuck it, stuck it in the drawer, and it basically never came out. The stock market was about one tenth of what it is now, and I just cry whenever I think back on that. <laughs> sort of the sensation of lost time is really um, is really painful. Uh, you know, if you start the earlier you start, the more the you know these returns can really compound and help you. And don't take it out. You get you get penalized quite a bit if you take out your four hundred one k early, right? How does that work? Does do if businesses matched you and you take your four hundred one k out early? Is that still the business doesn't get like money back from doing that? Or no, something no, the there? business it's it, it's it's gone. But if you take if if you withdraw from the four hundred one k early, you pay you pay tax on it and you pay a penalty on it. Mm. And basically, that's actually the government's way of saying, "Why are you doing this?" And right. now you can often borrow against your 401k and that's sort of a double-edged sword. If you have really big credit card debt, that can sometimes be a good thing to do. But if you keep borrowing against your 401k, of course, what you're doing is you're really eroding the value of it. And plus, you know, very often when you borrow it, they'll take a chunk of it and they'll put it into some really safe thing because it's the collateral for your for your borrowing. And then that over time, that is going to reduce the the returns that you get. There's actually a really interesting study that compared black workers and white workers at the same company and looked at what happened to their savings over time in their 401k. And they found that the the black workers were actually putting in about the same percentage of their incomes into their 401ks as the white workers. Uh, But they ended up with a lot less money after like 10 years. And there were two reasons for that. One is that they just on average made less money Mm -hmm. just because this is America. Right. but the other was that they had to draw on the 401k more and they were borrowing against it. And because they were borrowing against it, they were sort of more conservative in the way that they were using it. And instead of really using it as retirement, they were they were having to use it as a kind of life emergency fund. And sometimes it was like my cousin's emergency fund because I have to help right. my cousin who's got a problem. And so you have these people who are basically frugal and doing what they should be doing, except that 
they really, uh, you know, they they just had to draw on this money uh, more than was optimal from the point of view of, uh, you know, a, you know what, what a financial professional would say, this is the, the way we're hoping that you're able to use this thing. And um, so, so you want to you want to put your four hundred one k in if you can, and then let it let it grow over time, and try not to draw on it if you can avoid it, and certainly try not to actually withdraw the principal from it because you'll pay a big you'll pay a big uh, penalty for that. Well, that does emphasize just how 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 difficult life can be if you are a person of uh, low income because a, a lot of a lot of poor people are shopping at. Sam's Club or whatever, and and being incredibly frugal, whereas people that are making more money are, you know, going out to eat too much or buying fancy wine and all this stuff, and they still end up being better off because they have all those emergencies covered. That's very true, and uh, and also these products, by the way, are also a lot of things like 401ks are set up in a way that is very natural and comfortable for upper middle class people and it kind of follows the script of our lives and we also get a bigger tax benefit because whenever things are you know if you're in a higher tax bracket anything that sort of gives you some sort of a you know this part of your income is untaxed of course it's going to be worth more if you're in a high tax bracket so a lot in fact as a public policy matter a lot of the sort of college savings uh uh vehicles and things like that is really problematic that we've set things up so that people who have the money to set aside in these ways can really benefit heavily. And uh, with 529 accounts, the median family income of people of these college 529 accounts is is something like $142,000. Hmm. And you and most of the money is actually in these accounts from people who are significantly more affluent than that. So we we have to sort of look at this from a policy point of view and say is there a better way we can do this? But as an individual, you have to look at it and say, "Hey, this is this is the game I'm playing, so I right. got to play it properly." Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so let's see. Is, is, Should we move on to uh, rule number four? Yeah, yeah. This oh, is the that, easy one. That, see, yeah, all right. I mean, this is just from you know talking with uh, and, and reading behavioral economics stuff in the in the past, and even some just. Uh, psychology books in general. The, this is one that I sort of already knew. It doesn't apply to me too much because I don't have money to invest in anything anyway, but this is never buy or sell individual stocks. Now, why is that? I cannot exaggerate how much we all suck at doing this. You know, there is just no reason for you to ever get into, you know, I think Apple's going to just go nuts with the new iPhone. I'm going to buy a bunch of Apple stock. The uh, the behavioral economics literature on this, it is phenomenal how bad we are. And it's not just the guys who are sort of sitting in their basement in pajamas frantically day trading, the sort of stereotype of the uh, – I mean those people certainly do very poorly, but it's right. everybody. And it turns out there are studies that look at things like the value of the stocks that we sell compared to the value of the stocks that we buy with the money we got with the money we – from the stocks that we sold, the stocks that we sold outperform the stocks that we buy. Like we are so bad at this, we tend to chase after shiny objects that we heard about, which are sort of pumped up in value. Uh, you know, there is, and there's almost everybody is just really bad at buying stocks. You're, if you think about it, suppose I'm Harold Pollock's thinking about buying some Chrysler stock, 
And I'm like, wow, I really like that new Chrysler 300. It looks like it's just going to be a great product. It's got heating and cooling cup holders in it, for uh, crying out loud. Yeah, which is awesome. That is awesome. And, it, it, I mean, how else am I going to keep my caviar cold? That, And, you know, if you think about it, first of all, there's an awful lot about Chrysler I'm not going to understand. But also, I'm competing against people who are like professional investors whose job, whose full-time job is to track the auto industry and who, you know, who are sitting there and who, you know, and who have access to information I don't have, who have more training than I have, and who are probably better at that. And by the way, they're not so great at it either. It turns out the people who manage, actively manage mutual funds, they underperform these simple indexes and they're like way better at this than I am. So the great thing, by the way, about that, first you hear that and it just punctures your ego because I think a lot of us want to think, you know, I'm like really smart. I could – and I know like five years ago I noticed how what a great company uh, – you know, Apple. I sort of looked at the, at the iPod and I thought, wow, these people are really great. If I'd only bought Apple stock then, it wouldn't have been great. Like, and, I, and I know somebody who did that and now is doing great. At first it punctures your ego to think, no, I'm probably not going to be good at that. But then it comes as a huge relief – because, wow, I don't have to think about all that stuff. And imagine if you, in order to retire, you really had to become like a a very, very skilled investor. Like you had to read the business page every day and like really be on top of it. Like it's like having a second job. Right. Like like you should what you should be spending your time on is like being funny. Right. You Writing know? more <laughs> jokes and yeah. Yeah. And like being like spending time with people in your life that you care about and all that kind of stuff. Right. And then just buy an index fund and don't don't try to be Warren Buffett. Wait, now, what's an index fund? An index fund is you is a mutual fund where you, they buy lots of stocks, mm-hmm. and all they're trying to do is just track like the S and P five hundred or some larger group of stocks. Maybe you need to have a lot of small companies in there, so you're trying to track the whole stock market. So they don't have all these analysts trying to look at you know, what's going to happen with the new Chrysler CEO. Is there some sort of a problem with their balance sheet? You know, sort of the kind of picking winners and losers type stuff. All they do is they say, we just want to hold the whole market, and periodically you have to go in and sort of rejigger it to make sure that it's still representative of the average, but we are not like in holding an OJ trial on a bunch of individual companies to try to figure out how much they're worth, which is just expensive for you right. as an investor. So it turns out like with the stuff that I – the index funds that I have, they charge me a management fee of like 0.1 or 0.2% per year. That's it. And as opposed to the ones that are trying to pick winners and losers where that's like you know, 0. 0.7, 0.8, 1% a year. And over time it turns out – Wow, that really adds up, and there's just no evidence that most of these funds do any better. And in fact, they do a lot worse because you're always paying out these fees every year. They sort of dribble out. Yeah, um, I remember a couple of years ago reading out it. I can't think of the name of the uh, heuristic or whatever that was being discussed, but it was it was uh, just about, I guess, sort of the illusion of expertise and in, in these people that are you know these professional traders working on wall street or whatever and 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 they they really do have a lot of knowledge and do spend a lot of time researching this stuff but also because of that they also have uh too much confidence and uh and and tend to then gamble more because they're like well i know all this stuff i know and so they end up not faring any better than anyone else well you also have one key advantage over these people i mean they are smarter they have more information and so on than you have but they're also accountable for how am I going to look, you know, three months from now, and and they, and like what am I doing? I've got to just 
be active doing stuff for people. And uh, and often they have you know, they have a variety of financial incentives to do that. Whereas you can be like, I don't care what the stock market is this you know until twenty thirty, you know. Uh, so uh, so just don't buy any or sell any individual stock. Just is the easiest thing. Uh, so that's just something no one should ever do. And that kind of goes along with number five. Yeah, I think we're covered on rule five. Yeah, just buy yeah. inexpensive stuff and then don't mess with it. There's just no – don't try to – I should say also don't try to time the market and don't try to figure out, you know, is the stock market uh, – you know, what's it going to be a year from now? Nobody knows that. And you just you just want to keep methodically putting the money in and, and cranking away. And then, uh, so you introduced me to a new term that I didn't know for rule number six. What's that? <laughs> Make your financial advisor commit to the fiduciary standard. I'd never heard that word before. So suppose that you go to someone, and by the way, I should say that the person that you go to, if you get financial help, they probably have an official title which does not have the word advisor in it but has some other fancy-sounding thing. Um, but, you know, you go to one of the storefront um, brokerage places and you say, hey, I need some help figuring out my retirement or my kid's college or whatever. And you're dealing with someone who's really friendly, has got a lot of emotional intelligence and is talking with you. Um, they're usually governed by something called a suitability standard, which is I have to offer you financial products that are suitable for your situation. And it's not like they're Bernie Madoff or something like that. But let's suppose that a, I just I talked to you about index funds before. Let's suppose that an index fund is suitable to your situation. You're just like, you know, I'm a comic. I'm about 35. I want to start retiring, you know, saving for my retirement. And they say, well, you know, here's here, an index fund is pretty sensible for you. Uh, well, I, I happen to deal with a particular family of index funds, you know, with my company. And we charge you 1% a year for those index funds. Because uh, not all index funds, by the way, charge the same. Some of them are really cheap, but they're not all cheap. You have to look and see. Well, suppose he knows, well, I could actually send you over to Fidelity or T. Rowe Price or Vanguard, and they have a much cheaper one. He doesn't have to even tell you that that exists. Hmm. So there could be one that's, say, 0.1% a year fees. That's exactly the same as his, which is 1% a year. They're both suitable for your situation, even though one is a lot more expensive. Hmm. Uh, what... Uh, what you want to do is work with someone, whereas the fiduciary standard says what he has to do or she has to do is do the thing that is, is actually in your financial interest. So if there's a conflict, it has to be resolved in favor of what's better for your money. And uh, and what you want is what's called a fee-only advisor, someone who's, who's basically only being paid by you to give you this advice. I actually think financial advisors can be very valuable because you need to get another pair of eyes to look at your stuff and you can talk about issues that whatever issues in your life might be of concern. Uh, but the financial products that these guys sell, they have a problem that the advice they give is often good, but they make their money off of financial products that are often bad. And what you really need to do is just pay them straight up for the things that they're good at, at, at doing for you. Right. A lot of times they get paid off of just the number of transactions that, that they make, right? They're getting paid per transaction sometimes. Yeah, which is really, and of course, since the right number of transactions is basically zero, you know, you just keep right. buying and then not more. So that's, that's a tremendous incentive for mischief. And, you know, there's a saying, if it's free, you're the product. And I'm amazed by how many people I talk to. If I say, how much does your financial advisor cost? They'll say, oh, he's free. And I'm thinking, Gee, you know, I don't work for free very often. Uh, you know, how is this person paid? And very often when you actually look into it, you realize, wow, I'm actually paying that person a ton of money 
where I'm paying somebody a ton of money because he's putting me into these things that are more expensive than they should be. And I would be much better off if I paid that guy like $250 for an hour of his time to just walk me through what, what I should be doing. Now, because we're so used to these fees being so opaque and sort of tied up in weird ways that we don't see with uh, uh, you know compensation from these funds, we do have a sense of sticker shock as individuals sometimes. When if somebody says, "I want, to, I'm going to charge you $250 for an hour of my time," your reaction is, "You know, WTF? What do you mean? That's a lot of money." Right. But actually, I'm, we got to kind of face up to that and to say, "Hey, this guy's got a valuable skill." And uh, it's worth it, actually, very often. I think financial advisors and accountants actually know stuff. And you pay them straight up, but you want to be the only person really paying for their services when they're telling you about your money. And you want to be just very cordial and direct. Say, I want you to be on a fiduciary standard with me. And if they're uncomfortable with that, that's kind of a red flag. If they're it, A lot of these guys, that's actually their calling card. They say, oh, yeah, that's, I actually am on the fiduciary standard. And they'll and they'll be happy to tell you about it. That's what you want. Right. So that's the fiduciary standard. Um, that's interesting. So so this one um, is, I'm I'm interested in. This is something that I've had uh, a lot of conversations about in in past relationships and stuff like that. But uh, not, we'll do a show on your past relationships next. <laughs> oh, we, we we've done a lot of those shows. <laughs> um, rule seven is buy a home when you are financially ready. Um, so so this is the American dream, right? To to own a home and then and then you've made it and you're living life the way uh, society tells you to. Boy, you really have to resist that little voice in your head that says, I'm not an adult until I own a house. And in fact, I should own a big house because that's how I'm really going to make it in a, a house. Uh, the way Helene often puts it is, is a very expensive automatic savings plan. There's some good things about owning a house. First of all, it forces you every month to see, you know, if you sort of reliably pay your mortgage at the end of 30 years, you, you have this thing that you own, which is your house. If you're lucky, the value of your house goes up. Uh, you can also put a purple stripe on the wall if that's what you want to do. You know, you're, uh, it's kind of nice to own, you know, to have control over your domain. The bad thing about owning a house is that it's the most leveraged and undiversified and biggest investment you're ever going to make in your life. And so, uh, you know, if you can just scrape together enough for somebody to give you a mortgage and you buy a house and then, uh, the value of that house drops or you lose your job and you have to sell your house, you can be in some trouble. Or if the if the boiler bursts and you don't have a strategic reserve, you know, houses are kind of expensive. You should think of your house as something that you use, not as something that, that you're investing in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the value of my own house is about a third less than it was at its peak uh, be, just because the area that I live in, the south end of Chicago, has really gotten hammered by the foreclosure crisis. And uh, that happens. You know, that we, I think we all learned something in the Great Recession. The value of housing can drop. And right. uh, uh, so I, I think you really, you, you really want to save up a 20% down payment. And then you want to get a vanilla ice cream mortgage. That's like a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. And you wait until you buy it, until you can put down that 20%. And you have a strategic reserve that will get you through... Uh, you know, in our case, a raccoon ate through our roof at one point. You know, things happen when you own no, a house. You mean that raccoon fund. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Those raccoons, they looked kind of cute, but they're nasty. Oh, they are. I used to live in a uh, 
I, I was in a um, brick uh, apartment building in in Boston, and uh, and a raccoon would climb three stories straight up a brick wall somehow and get into our <laughs> and get into our garbage and stuff that was out on the back uh, little deck. That's a little scary. <laughs> it is. They are free. You sure you weren't doing hallucinogenics at the time and there was I, no raccoon? I may have been. <laughs> <laughs> you must have researched me a little bit. Uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, it, yeah, I... It's a house is something that's never been terribly appealing to me. I I enjoy renting. I like having the flexibility of uh, if I want to move to a new city at any time, I can, and not have to worry about you know what, what I'm losing in this investment or what, because I mean, how long do you have to own a house before you're even if you buy a house and then sell it three years later, you're gonna. Uh, you just don't a bath out on it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You buy a house because you expect to live in it for at least five to seven years. And it limits your flexibility quite a bit. When I moved to Chicago, uh, it was, um, first of all, I wish we had rented initially because we had learned about the place. But, um, uh, but I, I remember, uh, I was very fortunate that I bought less of a house than in principle I could have afforded because we then had this horrible financial crisis in our family. Uh, right after we moved, you know, it was, it was three months after we moved in. Uh, you know, we had this incredible family financial crisis, and you know, you can stop going to Starbucks, but you can't stop paying your mortgage. Right. And and having uh, having that limited mortgage payment was great, but it, it also, but we we were forced to stay in this house. If we had wanted to say, hey, our life just changed, we really need to move now. It's hard to do. Uh, one of the funny things about, by the way, with our house is. Uh, I was. I had just gotten tenure at the University of Chicago, and I don't know how many academics you interview, but I, I was teaching at Michigan at the time. You go through this incredible ego rush when you get tenure, and you just walk around like, "Don't you know who I am?" Like to everybody. Uh, at least I did. Yeah, and yeah. so I came to Chicago, and the university. I had saved like no money because mm-hmm. because I was not saving any money, and um, and so when I moved, the university helped me with a down payment to my house, and I. Walk into the and they sent me to a bank, and um, so I go to and I'm talking to this mortgage professional at the bank, and I'm just totally in this like I am Mr. Great, and I and I start having talking about how all the great house I'm going to buy, and he and the guy looks at me and he says he's actually talking on the phone he says I, I just you know Mr. Pollock you're you're a bad customer. Like I'm only dealing with you because the University of Chicago is an important client, and uh, you know I'm sort of willing to deal with you, but I'm going to give you like a modest vanilla ice cream mortgage, uh, and the, like you think it's a plus that the university is helping you with the down payment. I think it's a minus because first of all, if you if it doesn't work out for you at the University of Chicago, they're going to they're going to want that money back, and so and you're a forty year old guy, you you put in like no none of your own cash basically. And, uh, and so, so, you know, I'm sort of willing to work with you, but not a whole lot. And I was, I was kind of rude to the guy. I was really miffed and I was not as courteous as I usually am to most people. And of this being 2003, I found another mortgage broker who would have been quite happy to do whatever. Um, I now realize looking back, this was like the, the most honest financial professional I basically ever dealt with. He was just like, Hey, this is, this is what I see from my side of the table. 
And P.S. By the way, this is a couple of years before everything just you know went crazy in the foreclosure crisis. Not a stupid man. Yeah. And I, I was uh, I feel like I should find him and thank him because <laughs> we did we did buy less of a house in part because you know that, that was a that kind of was chastening. Yeah, well, that's the best advice is usually the hardest to hear. Oh, man, it was. Absolutely. Um, so here, here's a, a, it, something that I am interested in and, and know uh, nothing about, really, is um, so in, insurance in general. This is something that I, again, have a long history of not be, being very good about uh, keeping myself well insured and everything else. I didn't have health insurance for like 10 or 11 years. Fortunately, oh, wow. I got it right before my injury, like months before. Oh, thank I, goodness. I, I had perfect health and everything that 11 years that I didn't. And then uh, I got insurance and three three months later, uh, I, I'm sure I would have been bankrupt or whatever without it. Yeah, I think that, by the way, that's you need insurance to make sure that that you don't have some sort of life-changing event. And that's exactly the kind of thing. And by the way, I, I, I've done a lot of health policy work. Younger people sometimes think, oh, I don't need to worry about that now because of Obamacare. If, if something bad happens to me, I can just sign up. Right. No. <laughs> that is exactly – that's precisely what you cannot do. So you know, if you change your job or you have some sort of major life event, you can, you can sign up for insurance. But what counts as a qualifying life event is not I got hit by a car while I was riding my bike. If you're uninsured and you do that, you know you're you're in trouble. Right. And so, so please, if you are uninsured, get some health insurance. If you're listening to this, uh, you know, don't think that somehow Obamacare allows you to sort of take a risk. It, you know, sometimes you can people call refer, on the way to the emergency room. Yeah, or whatever. yeah, you cannot do that. You specifically cannot do that. Now, if you qualify for Medicaid, there is. It gets a little bit more complicated than that, but please do not do that. It's uh, you know, there's some people refer to the insurance business as going bare, and I won't go into a lot of detail. But if you think about that metaphor, it's never a great idea. The um, uh, but so what you want to have though is you want to have health insurance, and you also want to have you want to have life insurance for the people that are depending on you, and. Uh, uh, so I'm not having kids. I got no one depending on me. So I'm so I'm safe there. I don't need life insurance. Do I have any reason why I need well the life good insurance? well the the reason why you might want to buy life insurance is is uh, if you're thinking well my my situation may change and uh, uh, I may have kids in the future and right now I'm really healthy and if I buy life insurance now I can kind of continue to you know to to have it. And if something bad happens to me, I may become uninsurable in the future. And and I want to make sure that doesn't happen. Okay. Uh, but things like disability. So I could invest in a vasectomy instead and, of, of life insurance. A vasect- a, the rate of return on a vasectomy financially is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. It is uh, no doubt about that. Yeah. It, uh, but that, that's a separate. Maybe I need to do a new index card on that. <laughs> the um, uh, rule number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've I've interviewed I've interviewed a couple of professional athletes, asking them about how they manage their money. That might be a uh, an area where it would be you know especially valuable for them. Yeah. The, yeah. the um, but um, uh, but you want to have things like uh, like your homeowner's insurance if someone slips and falls. Uh, you know, and really hurts themselves, and 
and you're financially liable, you want to be covered for stuff like that. You don't you don't need insurance for the small stuff. You need it for the big stuff. Mm. And uh, and it gets really boring to get into too much detail beyond that. But but that's what uh, uh, you know. You want you want to have homeowners insurance, renters insurance for basically for the life changing stuff. You don't want to. You don't bother with stuff. You know, like what happens if I have a six hundred dollar claim? That's not what. That's not why insurance is valuable. It's the. It's the five hundred thousand dollar problem. Right. So, like with your, like I drive a junky car. I just have liability insurance. Right. That's all I need. Yeah. Yeah. And and that you know that works out well, great. Well, so I'm someone who rents, and I don't have. I, I'm. I'm definitely a bit of a minimalist. Um, even even when I have the money, just I don't I don't care too much about having belongings, um, so I don't have very many mm-hmm. uh, that I especially none that I really care that much about. I could throw it all away for all I mo- most things I f- care about fit in my car. So do <laughs> do I need uh, renters? I would insurance? say the liability aspect. I mean, suppose that raccoon sues you. You know, they're trying uh, to get yeah. it. You know, <laughs> so so uh, evil raccoon. Yeah, but that's what you need. You don't need. Uh, you know, if you if you really don't have uh, possessions that are valuable, that that's. But you really want to be thinking with insurance, like what could happen that could change my life or change the lives of people that depend on me, and make sure that you're covered for that. So that's probably all I, all I um, would say about the insurance one. All right, so we got one more. We 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 just hit the uh, hour mark a minute ago, so we're uh, we're right on track to we're get rocking. to the to the last one mm-hmm. or the last two. Which uh, yeah, so number nine is uh, do what you can to support the social safety net. This is something that we could do a whole episode on. I feel like uh, some sometime, or maybe I'll have a, another guest to talk about uh, these issues sometime but but just um i guess as briefly as you'd like to we can uh talk about rule number nine well you know we have to protect each other against the kinds of risks that would just crush any one of us if we had to bear it alone and uh, by the way this i got more pushback on this rule than any other rule on the original index card a lot people of, are against like social security and like government assistance type of stuff. Is the, that the issue? That's one. And people are like, you know, you gave them all these personal financial tips that that I thought were basically pretty good, and then you got like all political on me. Oh yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I got a lot of that, and and uh, I feel it would be dishonest for me to leave that out because. You know, one thing is in our own family, I told you about the crisis we had. We would have just been totally wiped out if it weren't for Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. And it's just a reality that I, I'm a good saver and investor, but there's just no way that we could cover the kinds of expenses that my brother-in-law has you know, without these programs. And you know, Social Security is not only protecting you in your old age, but you know, if, if I died prematurely, it is essentially a four hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy for my kids, right. and uh, you know, and we have to, uh, as a community, we really have to protect each other. There's going to be people for a variety of reasons who are who are going to need help, and certainly at particular moments, there's going to be the comedian who breaks his uh, foot and can't work, and you know, if we twist the details of that story around a little bit through no fault of your own, you might have needed a lot more help. Right. And we should all chip in. You should chip in to, to that uh, as well. You know, when you're uh, you know, doing well as a comedian, you chip in for the uh, 
to protect yourself against what happens if I don't do well. Well, when there's people with distress in your community, that's going to that's that's going to be uh, you know bad for the community in general. That's going to lead to more crime and everything else. When you have people that are in desperate, dire situations, and that's why we have these social uh, safety nets. And, absolutely, but it's also because we care about each other, right? And, and um, one of the one of the great things about taking care of someone with an intellectual disability is that I would say everybody across the political spectrum, everybody that we see, are like incredibly nice to us, and like nobody ever says like, you know, I, I'm, I'm you're spending my money, and I think people get, you know, sometimes you have a child who has a serious problem, or you have a genetic disorder, or whatever, and um, and I think we all have to kind of get, uh, you know, the things that you try to get insurance for. And they're the things you can't get insurance for because life's lottery is run before you get a chance to buy that insurance policy. And that and, and social insurance really helps you with that second group of things. And so anyway, I think that's really important. And so that's why I kept it in. So you're not uh, invest in gold because of the, the apocalypse is coming kind of a guy? <laughs> I don't quite get how after the apocalypse comes, like what I'm supposed to do with my gold. I, I, I mean, eat it, I guess. I don't know. I don't know who then has a, a need yeah. for... I can understand like seeds or something if all of a sudden you're going to start farming or having canned goods during the apocalypse or something like that but i'm not sure what the value a lot of, of these ap- is exactly i don't get it either it's As like i know, you know what happens to gold when when shit hits the fan because i've been to vegas it goes yeah. right to the pawn shop for a tenth of the value or less is what happens to yeah, gold I, when I, I don't things get, go wrong i don't get it. it's like people saying social security is going bankrupt so you should buy this thing that we're offering I'm like, dude, if Social Security has gone bankrupt, like, there's a lot that's going to be wrong at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, you get bigger problems than, uh, you know, than, than what am I going to do with this gold thing? Well, you know? Why are these guys selling you this gold if this is such a, if this apocalypse is coming and this is such a oh. valuable thing? Why are they giving it away to you for such a bargain? You know, one of the sad Just things. Just so they can buy it right back from you oh, <laughs> under of, a different company name. Oh, actually, one of the sad things is that the. Every investment ripoff that I've ever heard of, they all a lot of them start the same way, which is they say you sit down with a bunch of people who are near retirement, and and pound foolish by there's a ton of stuff on this Elaine's book, but so you know you get a bunch of sixty year old people and they know that they haven't saved enough for retirement, so they've got like thirty thousand dollars and it's just not going to be enough, and um, and and then so they're looking for something. And this person says, you know, in the first five minutes, the person says, you know, you need to have $250,000 just for your health care if you retire. And Social Security, it's not going to be there. The right. people in the government, they're not going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and they basically, they do two things. They scare the daylights out of you and they discredit all of the usual sources of information you might turn to. And then they say, you know, I got this thing that can help you. And this thing that can help you, of course, is a ripoff. Right. It's some sort of variable annuity, gold, whatever it is that's junk. But they're they're basically saying, "I you have this real problem," and they're basically saying, "You are really in trouble." And and then you're like, "Okay, that thing is probably a ripoff, but I it's my Harold Mary pass." And and so many and you know, like so many of the things on cable TV, these gold things, you're sort of watching the host who's like freaking you out about how the world is going to hell. And then you're like, well, maybe I do need this gold thing. And right. it's 
And a, never buy any celebrity-endorsed financial product or any financial product that's advertised on TV. Yeah. And that's that uh, that should be rule number 11. George anyway. Foreman makes a great grill, but don't take financial advice from him. No, but you can buy, yeah, you should take you should buy his grill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all I, right. Well, uh, so in in rule number 10 is remember the index card, of course, the all important rule number 10. Absolutely. And uh, so so as we wrap up, um, I have each one of my guests plug a, a nonprofit of their choice. So uh, what would you like to plug this week? I'm going to plug the New Hope Center in Crete, Illinois. The New Hope Center is where my brother-in-law, Vincent Peroni, uh, gets a lot of his services, and they take care of intellectually disabled people, and uh, and they just do an important service, and I want to honor that. And so that's the uh, the charity that I'm plugging. That is fantastic. And everyone, make sure and go to the herewearepodcast.com website. You can, uh, you can, there, there will be a, a link to the charity on there, and there uh, will also be a link to... Uh, Harold's book, The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated, and his co- uh, check out uh, his co-writer, Elaine Olin, too, who wrote the book Pound Foolish, which I uh, actually just started uh, listening to after after yours. Um, and uh, I'd love to have you on again to talk about your uh, uh, what you actually do at the university here on, on, on your day-to-day basis. You do a lot of uh, health care and, and uh, social service and, and criminal um, research. I do. Right? Um, so, yeah, if you're willing, love to have you back on again sometime. Um, thank you very much, Harold, for joining me. And, uh, and thank you, listeners, for being curious, and I'll talk with you next week. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Make sure and tune in next week. I talk to James Beck, assistant professor at Wichita State University. We talk about a bunch about plants, about uh, the evolution of plants specifically, and, uh, and biology, and a, a whole bunch of plant talk. And uh, th- this is probably a, a good uh, time to remind people that um, it it will definitely help with understanding some things if you've been listening to the podcasts from the beginning, starting with the first episode and so on. I know many of you uh, are new listeners just discovering this, so maybe this is the first episode that you've listened to. Um, I I I don't like to uh, once we've established some of these concepts i try not to repeat them too much because uh the regular listeners will um you know uh get bored with that hearing the same thing over and over again so i often have to go into these interviews assuming that um we've already covered some uh basic or similar stuff before and so that you guys already have some of the that knowledge and some of those concepts in your head and so that just makes makes things a little easier to understand i just said because next week's episode um we uh get get a a little technical uh dive in a little deep into uh the plant world which is an interesting odd and foreign place and so um knowing what we've already learned so so far will help guide you through that all right um and i probably didn't need to that probably could have been 30 seconds um but i kept talking anyway this is 
just how it goes sometimes as my brain's trying to figure out the best way to close. I should just say goodbye. So there it is. Thank you guys for listening. You're wonderful. Make sure and review and share and all that good stuff to support the podcast. And talk to you next week. Bye. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons... It's possible that he killed himself (laughs) is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a. I'm a. Rich, I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help she's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha